Hello everyone, the loudspeakers of my computer are finally fixed, so I'm returning with my weekly podcast today. Touch on wood, it's an old computer. First of all, I hope you're all well, or as well as you can be at this time. It's difficult for all of us, but it's important that we all stay home whenever we can, and maybe it helps some of you to pass the time to hear me chat about various lovely women. I originally thought that I would talk about Joe and Lovell in my next podcast, But in the last month I discovered something that made me come to a different decision. And so instead, I will talk today about Anne Lovell, childbirth, the history of just that and sexist misconceptions leveled at poor Anne. So expect me to become a bit ranty while talking about this. As I have spoken about in my first podcast about Anne, which gave the bare facts we know about her and her life, Anne was the wife of Francis Lovell, first Viscount Lovell. She was some four years younger than him. They were married as children when Anne was only four years old and her husband eight. This in itself has sometimes caused people to speculate that the marriage was a bad one, because they did not get to choose it, but were forced into it as children. Imagine me making air quotes around the forced into it, as it was the total norm at the time. Anne and of Francis, expecting not to have a marriage arranged for them, would be about as likely as me, a woman from Germany, a country which has had compulsory schooling since at least 1830, being shocked and outraged at having to go to school like everyone else around me. Don't quote me on the exact date that it became compulsory for Germans to attend school. I'm a medieval scholar. I just wanted to give an idea of how common arranged marriages were in the 15th century and long before and long afterwards. So anyway, the idea Anne and Francis resented the very fact that they had to be in an arranged marriage is ridiculous. Though of course, There were cases of people not being happy at all with who was chosen for them as their spouse. However, there is absolutely no evidence this happened in this case, and there would have been no reason for it. The two new spouses were only children, and with Anne being a baron's daughter and Francis being a baron, there was no obvious gap in how highborn they were which could have caused any resentment on anyone's part. Anyway, that said, let's move on to them both being older and moving in together as man and wife. This happened when Anne was 16 and Francis was 20. 16 was the usually accepted age for consummation of a marriage, though cohabitation often happened earlier. Francis, however, made a point of not even wanting couples living together before the age of 16. Since there are many prominent examples of couples living in the same household together at a far younger age, this too has sometimes been taken as evidence for his dislike of Anne. I'm using air quotes again around the word evidence, because digging only slightly deeper makes it obvious that this was not something he confined to Anne. He also made a point of seeing to it that his sisters, his twin Joan and his younger sister Frieda Swede, I've been told how to pronounce it in English, but I can't do it, were not even married before they reached the age of 16. The reason for this is actually pretty obvious. His own mother had first become pregnant when only 13 years old, and Francis wanted to avoid any possibility of this happening to his sisters. And obviously, it was also a signal that he would not even cohabit with his own wife before she had reached the age of 16. It's actually pretty weird at this point that I've seen so much terrible nonsense written about them that I have to defend Francis for not showing an interest in his wife before she was 16, and especially have to defend Anne from accusations of being frigid or horrible or ugly because her husband showed no interest in living with her until the mid-1470s. 
No, he showed no interest in her because she was a young teenager. Got that? Good. So, when Anne turned 16 in 1476, she and Francis moved in together, first living at his ancestral manor in Minster Lovell. Now, you'd think the obvious conclusion would be that they also consummated their marriage then. But you'd be wrong. This is apparently only the obvious conclusion for any other couple but Anne and her husband. For them, you will find people claiming they hated each other so much that they would not consummate, and for some ungodly reason, which is blatant sexism, in case it actually needs to be spelled out, it usually gets blamed squarely on Anne. The nicest version out there is that she and Francis both did not want to consummate their marriage because they had known each other since childhood, with the far more widespread version being that somehow Anne was too ugly and too horrible for Francis to consummate the marriage. I'm supposed to side with him in these versions. Yes, really. And how are these claims explained? By Anne and Francis having no children. Apparently, infertility is a modern invention, and absolutely did not exist in the 15th century. But let's unravel this from the beginning. As we've already said it earlier, both would have known from the first they would be in an arranged marriage and that this would include consummating their marriage once they were old enough to do so. Their feelings about this would not have mattered at all. History is full of couples who did not like each other and still had children, because it was expected of them. Prime example, but hardly the only example, being Empress Matilda and Geoffrey of Anjou. Even if Francis somehow found Anne too ugly or too horrible to consummate, and spoiler, he didn't, he still would be expected to do it. Why on earth almost all of these versions, which claim that, expect me to side with Francis when portraying him falsely as being such a horrible person, don't ask me. No one ever claims Anne found him too ugly or too horrible to consummate. Not that it would have mattered, because they would have been expected to do it anyway, but I'm just pointing out here that the fault is always claimed to have laid with Anne. Next bit. Them knowing each other since childhood. That was also common. Very common. Almost everyone would have known their spouse or future spouse since childhood. Absolutely everyone, not just nobles married at a young age. The odds of even the most common commoner not knowing their spouse from childhood in a time when few people would have left their home villages much are astronomical. And in fact, we have many cases that show it did not matter at all to people. Anne's own great-aunt, Cecily Neville, knew her husband Richard, Duke of York, since they both were children and they had 12 kids together. The marriage of Anne's first cousin, Anne Neville, with the future Richard III, uh, is often held up as the greatest of love matches, explicitly because of them knowing each other since they were both fairly young, with little other evidence. But in the case of Anne Lovell, it was somehow supposed to have meant her husband could not consummate the marriage. Imagine me holding up a big neon sign saying no at this point. So... Anne and Francis would have consummated their marriage, whether they wanted to or not. They probably wanted to. There's evidence that theirs was a happy marriage, evidence that included her committing treason for him and him disinheriting his own cousin with whom he was on good terms for her. But their feelings about each other is a somewhat different subject. Forgive me for being blunt, but we're talking sex and childbirth here. Even by those who accept that Francis and Anne would have consummated their marriage, it is usually thought that she never conceived. That's the first assumption I'm addressing in my already rather lengthy rant that is reasonable. 
We know with absolute certainty that they never had a child together, so it makes sense to assume that this was a fertility problem, for after all, they lived together as man and wife for nine years, spending a lot of those nine years in each other's presence, and yet they never had a child. However, I wouldn't have written a book about Francis Lovell if I was happy to accept assumptions, even reasonable ones, about him and his family as the truth. And so I dug deeper in this case too, and it seems that the assumption, reasonable though it is, is not right. We are leaving the realm of fact here and are entering the realm of reasonable speculation, but there is some evidence that in 1477 Anne had a miscarriage, as there is a mention of someone bringing Penny Royal to my lady, meaning Anne, which was used in cases of miscarriage to fend off infections and make sure there was no complication. Complications could still arise, of course, but we know that Penny Royal was used for that. We also know that Anne and her husband, though usually not staying long in Minster Lovell, stayed there for long months in 1477, leaving only in the summer, which might mean that Anne was not able to travel after such a tragedy. This is sheerest guesswork, of course, and there might be plenty of other reasons for them deciding to stay longer that year than usual. The Penny Royal is more useful evidence. Now, if Anne had a miscarriage in 1477, that means that her marriage was consummated and that there was no fertility problem either. In fact, if that miscarriage happened in early 1477, which seems indicated by the purchase of the Penny Royal, it would suggest that she conceived fairly soon after moving in with her husband in 1476. The pregnancy would have progressed to at least its fourth month when Anne lost it. This is going to be a bit graphic now and a digression into medieval ideas of conception and childbirth, so consider this a fair warning. Naturally, early miscarriages happened at the time as well, but usually it was until the third month of a pregnancy that it was considered definite that a woman was carrying a child, even if for obvious reasons she might have been sure of it herself before that. However, losses before that time were often not realized to be such for that reason. It sounds strange to me to modernize in general, but that's how it was. Before that, there might have been talk of a probable loss, but nothing definite, so that usually speaking of miscarriages at the time means a second trimester loss. When the baby was considered old enough to even have a theoretical possibility of surviving from around the seventh or eighth month onwards, the babies were usually christened during birth. It was a kind of theological loophole. Naturally, a dead person could not be baptized, but someone who might still be alive could be, so that in that case, it could be said that the baby might still be alive and could therefore be baptized and go to heaven. From then on, it was referred to as a stillbirth, which means that if Anne truly did lose a child, it was almost certainly a second trimester loss. It would have been horrible, of course, but hardly uncommon, sadly enough. This is, however, the only evidence we have of Anne ever conceiving a child. It is always possible that something went wrong during this miscarriage and she was not able to conceive another child, but we have evidence against this, namely her husband's conviction. Eight years later, in 1485, she might still have children. Bear with me. Naturally, the obvious response to that is that he might simply not have known something had gone wrong, because honestly, without modern medicine, how should anyone know? However, at the time, it was the sexist reality that a woman was almost always blamed for a lack of fertility or having no children. This might not have been the case had the woman already had several children with the previous husband, 
and her current husband had none. But in a case such as Anne and Francis's marriage, with it being both their first marriage, Anne would have almost certainly been blamed for the lack of fertility, had she only conceived one child in nine years. Even if her husband had not actually blamed her, in the sense of been reproachful about it or thought that it was in any way her fault, it is hard to believe he would have been so secure she could have children, but he could not. But he did think that. We noticed from an indenture he made in 1485, leaving her lands for the event of his death, to her in such a way that she could leave it to possible descendants she might have. However, those lands were tied to her in such a way that it would disadvantage any possible children she might still have had by him after that date. The obvious conclusion is that he thought she could have children, and it would make sense if she had once conceived, but he could not. Without modern medicine, he naturally could not have known any sort of accident or illness between 1477 and 1485 had made him infertile. The only way for him to be absolutely certain he could not have children would be if he and Anne had stopped having sex. Obviously, if so, despite all the claims about Anne and her supposed horridness, it was not a problem with affection. The very fact he left her some of his ancestral lands in such a way she could pass them on to any children she might have with another man in the event of his death attests to that. However, Anne's husband was not a particularly healthy man, and it is possible that at some point after 1477 he was advised to stop having sex to preserve his health. This, too, was hardly unheard of. For example, when Prince Druan of Asturias, forgive my mangling of the pronunciation, died, it was rumored to be because of too much sex. Anne, by the way, had no interest in remarrying after her husband vanished and probably died in 1487. She was only 27 then. By the time she was 29, she had taken a religious vow, making it clear she would never remarry. This was not done because of any resentment towards her husband. Coming as it did, after several years of putting herself at risk by committing treason for him. If anything, it shows that she did not want any husband but the one she had been married to when they were both kids. Not even if that meant another man could have given her the chance of having children. Far from being any of the horribly sexy things that have been said about her in the last years, and solely in the last years, with no one having a bad word to say about her in her lifetime, Anne Lovell was an impressive woman. A woman whose marriage was so strong it survived her miscarriage and her husband's probable illness making it impossible for him to have sex after one point. Both things that could destroy a marriage even today. So if anyone's listening to me here and reads something later that insists on how horrible or frigid Anne Lovell was, too ugly to have sex with. Well, I'm not saying my thoughts here, but there is one thing that people seem to be buying inordinate amounts of all over the world in this current crisis, and which any paper that something is written on that insists such things about Anne could instead be used for. <laughs>